All right, so it looks, the last time I did this, last week it didn't record, so it looks like it's recording. Um, I have deep anxiety about today's sermon, um, but I believe strongly that the church, that Christians must engage the world. We, we have to provide a theological response to the events that unfold in our society that we're not just here to have a private faith where in our homes we read our scriptures and pray, where we have our personal faith in Jesus. But it's, it, it is that, but it's bigger than that, that we, we have to have a theological imagination that, that like engages the world, that provides an alternative to the world, that gives commentary on the world. Um, and I really believe that that Christianity offers an alternative to what we're seeing in the world. The logic of the world is often a logic of power. It is a logic of money. It is the logic of winning elections or um, putting other people out of business. It's the logic of survival, of violence. And I really believe that Christianity provides an alternative way of thinking, an alternative worldview, a way of being that says we don't have to live that way. We don't have to live according to that logic. We can live into the kingdom of God. But, but we have to sort of engage in dialogue with one another. So I'm going to be really honest. I think that some of the things I'm going to say, will you will disagree. Some of you, maybe many of you will disagree. And I am okay with that. I hope you are. I, I ask you only to consider what I'm saying to like really think about it, if you respect me at all, or my, or my perspective, just to think about it, to consider it. I don't expect us all to agree. I don't have all the answers. Uh, there are so many things I don't know and will never know, and, and things that I will get wrong. So I want to approach this with a kind of humble spirit that says, consider this, recognizing that this is just Joe Bankard's perspective, right? Um, I'm always open, I hope you know that, to talk more about it on the phone, to, to get coffee or to do other things where we can continue the discussion. That when we disagree, maybe we can disagree in a constructive way that moves things forward, that is respectful, kind, um, and loving even in the midst of disagreement. That we can maybe model in small ways what we want our country, what we want our world to look like. But I have anxiety. Because some of the things I'm going to say are difficult, and, um, and uh, I recognize that. So I have a couple of responses um, to the events of Wednesday, but, but maybe even more so just the state of the nation we find ourselves in from my perspective, right? One response is sort of like a citizen of the U.S. As a citizen of the U.S., here are my concerns. And then the second is sort of a theological response, like, as Christians, here's what I think we ought to be doing, or what a, a, a theological response might look like in the world. So, as a citizen of the United States, I am fearful, I have a deep anxiety about our growing political tribalism. And when I say that, I mean that for many Democrats, not all, and for many Republicans, not all, but for many, um, 
their loyalties to this particular political group are so deep that it blinds them to the realities that are taking place within their own party and the realities that are taking place in the broader world. And instead it becomes a kind of tribal psychology that defends their candidates, their people, their group at each turn. That this political tribalism, this deep political tribalism is fueled by Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, uh, online sources, right? So we get our news through social media and news feeds. And so Democrats end up in an echo chamber that feeds them information that is tailored towards a left-leaning perspective, why their party is always somewhat defensible and the other is the root of all evil. Republicans tailor their media, their information in ways that tell them why their party is always defensible and Democrats are always the root of all evil. And this continues the deep divide. So who, who are enemies for many Democrats? Not all, but many. It is Donald Trump and the Republicans. They are the enemy. They are, they are evil. They are, they are destroying America. That's the rhetoric now. If you are a Republican, not all Republicans, but many, who is the enemy? Who is destroying America? It is the left. It is Democrats. I'm calling on Christians to rise above this tribalism, to disentangle yourself from, from either tribe. Jesus is not a Democrat. Jesus is not a Republican. Jesus is not an American. That we've got to disentangle our loyalties and our emotions and our psychology from one team or the other and try to have a Christian perspective. That when one, when, when one party begins to say things like, uh, the radical right is doing X, Y, and Z and destroying, that we would try and temper that, that, that language. The radical left is destroying, oh, nah, right? That we're going to hold both political parties in tension. And I've mentioned before, and I will say it again, I'd, because of my feelings of the danger of political tribalism, I did not vote for Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. On principle, I voted for third party. I want there to be more voices. I want power to be dispersed. I don't think the two-party system is working for us. Um, and I think it leads to this kind of tribalism we're seeing. So I, I don't think it's a wasted vote. It's more on principle, wanting there to be more voices. I don't want me to say we and mean Democrats. I don't want to say we and mean Republicans. I want to transcend those loyalties as a Christian. I did not vote for Joe Biden. I did not vote for Donald Trump in this election. I don't want to have a defensive posture for either party. But that, that is not the reality that we live in with our friends and with our family. And even myself, because I have deep values and principles that I hold to be true and that I would argue are Christian, I still end up in some of these same disagreements, arguments, heated, frustrated. I'll say a few other words. To try to highlight the way political tribalism blinds, and I, there are so many examples of this, on both sides of the aisle. I'll just highlight one or two. On Wednesday, when there are people that storm the Capitol, end up inside taking pictures, and right, they're in Congress 
men and women's offices and in Senate offices, and it's it's just a mess. There's violence. They have guns. It's there. They find pipe bombs. I mean, it's it's crazy. Democrats, not all, many, frame the entire Republican Party in light of those individuals who did that. But do you really think that the people that stormed into the Capitol and did that represent Mitch McConnell or Mike Pence? Because I don't. Like, I don't, that, 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 that does not seem the same to me. That what was happening on Wednesday was not Republican, it was something totally separate from that. But it's hard not to want to do that, right? In fact, I imagine some of you are already feeling defensive, like, but we knew this was going to happen. For four years we've been warning the rhetoric was ramping up, and I, I get all of that. I understand. I'm just suggesting that using Wednesday for political gain, to win political points, to win future elections, by framing Republicans in that way seems to me totally to grow the divide, not shrink it. But of course, Republicans did the same thing over the summer when you had the majority of protests for racial justice as nonviolent, but then there are some radical groups, some individuals who looted, burned, created violence, and Republicans framed the Democrats, framed liberals, all by the small group of extremists, by the small group who were violent. Do you really think that like, the group that is burning buildings represents Barack Obama or what he stands for, right? Or Nancy Pelosi? Like, I don't think so. But both groups grow the divide in the way in which they are angry, judge, and frame things. And what's crazy is we can't see the contradiction. We can't see that when the other side does it, we react this way, but when our side does it, uh, we don't really react that way, right? The problem is we actually have a political side. We've, we're invested in defending that group. We are Republicans, or we are Democrats, and we want to make sure that our party is seen as the good, right, just, Christian, noble party when I'm going to make the argument that neither party is, that Christianity is going to have to become a third alternative, holding both parties at intention, at arm's length, that we have a prophetic, critical voice for both, calling them to faithfulness. But that's not what we see. That's not what we hear. And even, I would say, the majority Christian voice in this country ends up siding one political party or another and framing the other as evil. Wednesday was different for me, though. Wednesday was different, and here's why. You have a group that gathers to protest, which I think is important. Right? I am in favor of protests for racial justice. I want strong, aggressive protests that are nonviolent. I am committed to Christian nonviolence, and I think I, I, I condemn violence when it occurs, right, intentionally. But I'm in favor of that. I'm in favor of protests where we say, we, our voice needs to be heard. But as, these, as the Wednesday rally, it became clear, and, and since then it, it's obviously clear, that many of the loudest voices are people that lead racist groups like the Proud Boys or the Three Percenters, that these are, the, are dominant voices in these crowds and in these groups. Some of the most ardent 
Donald Trump supporters, right, are actively anti-government groups, right, promoting violence and whatnot. When the Capitol gets stormed after the rally, it's, it feels different to me because it was not a group of citizens upset. It was prompted by the most powerful person in the world, the President of the United States. And while most of us watched in horror as this is happening, the tweet comes out calling them patriots from Donald Trump saying that he loves them. Like supporting these actions. So I don't think what happened at the Capitol represents Republicans. I don't think it represents conservative values. I don't think it represents limited government, lower taxes, uh, endorsing the military, right? I don't think it support, endorses all of that. My fear is that it seemed to be endorsed by the president. And that seems different than violence that occurs during racial protests over the summer where there is no political candidate there whipping people up into that kind of frenzy. So now suddenly to me this feels bigger. You might not agree, right? This is, I am, I am humbly giving my perspective, not because I am an arbiter of like all truth. Just consider what I'm saying. This felt different to me because now it feels like the foundations of democracy are being questioned. Because the purpose of the rally is to say that the election that occurred was not free. It was stolen. It was rigged. So if an election takes place and millions of Americans don't believe the outcome, then the foundations of democracy are now in peril. And when that's being drummed, that, that drum is being hit by the most powerful person in the world, then it really undermines the credibility of an election. Like democracy cannot survive unless elections are trusted by the people. So these foundations are crumbling. This is where the sticky point gets, I think, in a lot of our conversations with friends and family is, well, was it a free and fair election or was it stolen, right? So again, I'm going to give you my perspective on this. I think it's important when someone raises concern, COVID, mail-in ballots, uh, this election's unlike any other, those have to be taken seriously. We have to say, is there evidence that there has been mass conspiracy to steal or thwart the election? Like, that has to be taken seriously. But here's what's hard for me is that it feels like it was taken seriously. That there was heightened accountability because these issues were raised by Republicans before the election occurred. That there have been counted and recounted. That state officials, election officials, have looked at these and re-looked at these claims of fraud. There's been 62 lawsuits. I mean, I want you to think about 62 different court settings, different judges involved from all across the political spectrum. Different states looking at these issues, some conservative, some liberal. And at each step of the way, the argument has been, the conclusion has been, yes, there is some fraud, just like in all elections. There's limited fraud here and there. But nothing that rises to the level of conspiracy or stealing the election. In my mind, the claims were taken seriously and the evidence, the vast majority of the evidence has spoken and even still, um, for many it is, it is rigged. This makes me deeply nervous. This makes me afraid for the future, right? This isn't the first time. This again has been an ongoing process. Democrats in 2000, 
when it was Al Gore versus George Bush Jr. Disputed, debated, Al Gore conceded, then took back his concession. Then it went to court. Then it was the same thing. It's been rigged. It's been stolen. Florida was the main state that was involved. George Bush's brother was the governor of Florida. Now there's all these claims by Democrats. Oh, they're stealing it. The Supreme Court eventually had to decide that election. Under, the undermining of democracy and the trust in elections has been ongoing now for decades. Not just from one side. But we're often blinded by our political loyalty to the evidence, to reason. And it's not like it's only true of Republicans, it's true of Democrats as well. I'm saddened that after this all went down, what I want, what I would like to see as a Christian is for Democrats to find a way to use the, this, this horrible situation to bridge the aisle, to go to those Republicans who are now walking back saying, oh man, this went too far. Find a way to work with them. Let's collaborate. Let's make sure this doesn't happen in the future. But instead, many Democrats, not all but many, are going for the jugular. Impeachment, 25th Amendment, punitive, we told you so. Growing the divide. Not bridging, not finding constructive solutions. Blinded by anger or revenge or a seek for political power to win political points. No grace. No, no collaboration. And I'm scared, by the way, now one party has control of the presidency, the Senate, Congress, all three levels of power controlled by Democrats, that should make everyone afraid. No, no group should have that much power. But often we're blinded by our loyalties to one party or another. Can we as Christians overcome this? I don't know what's going to happen with the future of our country. I'm going to transition now to sort of like the theological response, like, like what as Christians, what as Collister, what as the church might we do in response to this? I don't know how to fix this problem or this divide or this chasm, but I really believe that Christians need to step up, need to speak up for the kingdom of God, need to speak up for those values of love, compassion, grace, forgiveness, justice, decency, that we need to side with the marginalized, the voiceless, the powerless, to ensure that the gospel continues to flood, that we are salt and light in a world that needs it, that we don't get caught up in the political fray. But our voice sounds just like the voice of our agnostic Democrat neighbor. Our voice sounds just like the atheist Republican who lives four doors down. But that our voice really rises above U.S. politics and our loyalty to this country, to even nationalism, and that we become loyal to the kingdom of God. That it looks something completely separate. Living into a set of loyalties um, that's going to make everyone nervous because of their upside-down sort of radical nature to love even one's enemies. So to, to get this started, this theological response, what I would like is for Nancy to read, um, and she's going to be reading 1 Samuel chapter 8. And the context here is Israel was a slave in Egypt. They were slaves. They were set free by the hand of God. They roamed in the desert. They crossed into the promised land, but they find themselves surrounded by nations that all have a governmental structure, a monarchy, or an emperor, or a pharaoh, and they don't have that. They, they've never had that. And so 
the people of Israel begin to demand God give them a king. So go ahead, Nancy. 1 Samuel 8, verses 4 through 20. So all the Israelite elders got together and went to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, Listen, you are old now, and your sons don't follow in your footsteps. So appoint us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. It seemed very bad to Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So he prayed to the Lord. The Lord answered Samuel, Comply with the people's request, everything they ask of you, because they haven't rejected you. No, they've rejected me as king over them. They are doing to you only what they've been doing to me from the day I brought them out of Egypt to this very minute, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. So comply with their requests, but give them a clear warning, telling them how the king will rule over them. Then Samuel explained everything the Lord had said to the people who were asking for a king. This is how the king will rule over you. Samuel said, he will take your sons and will use them for his chariots and his cavalry and as runners for his chariot. He will use them as his commanders of troops of 1,000 and troops of 50, or to do his plowing and his harvesting, or to make his weapons or parts of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, or bakers. He will take your best fields, vineyards, and olive groves and give them to his servants. He will give one-tenth of your grain and your vineyards to his officials and servants. He will take your male and female servants along with the best of your cattle and donkeys and make them do his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks and then you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out because of the king you chose for yourselves. But on that day, the Lord won't answer you. But the people refused to listen to Samuel and said, No, there must be a king over us so we can be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us and lead us and fight our battles. Thank you, Nancy. Israel wants a king. Desperately. God does not want them to have a king. God is trying to say, Israel, I'm your king. I, I'm your leader, right? Follow me. Listen to me. Love me. Serve me. If I give you a leader, you'll become idolatrous, right? If I give you a leader, they're going to abuse power and be unjust. They're going to send your children off to war and take your harvest, at least part of it. Do things that benefit themselves and their commanders. There's a clear warning. This is not the will of God. And yet, God says if this is what they continue to ask for, then make, give it to them. Give them a king, but give them the warning. We can make this passage specific to Saul, who's Israel's first king, or David, and we could say, look, see, God was right. That king or this person was corrupt. You know, God warned them. We can try to apply it today and say, oh no, it's talking about President Barack Obama or President Donald Trump. That, that's who this passage is about, the evil ruler or something. But I want to claim, I want to argue 
that I believe this passage is about power and the insidious nature of power generally. That humans are not equipped, are not able to wield power well. That we use power poorly, even when we have good intentions. God is warning religious folks like you and I that whatever earthly structure, government leadership that you have, there's going to be major problems. Don't forget who your real king is. Don't forget where your real loyalty lies. Don't get caught up in the wrestling, the battle for control and for money and for power. That is what corrupts. Jesus rejects power at every turn. He is not rich. He has no political power, no military power. Uh, he is not famous. He is unknown. He comes from a Nazareth where no one good can come from, right? Jesus, the three temptations in the desert are all about power. Feed yourself. Be self-sufficient, Jesus. You can have all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus. And at every turn, Jesus rejects power. And as Christians, as humans, I think we should take Jesus' lead. We are not here to grasp after survival, for power, for more. But whatever power we have is to be divested in the service of others, used to empower others, give voice to others. This is the opposite of the U.S. political system, which is perpetually grasping at power. When I read 1 Samuel 8, I feel sufficiently warned by God about earthly powers, kings, and rulers. I am reminded of where my true loyalty should lie, and I'm going to challenge you that that should be your loyalty as well. That Christians in the United States should become less nationalistic, less embedded in either political party. That we become more distinctly Christian and faithful to God. And I think we have to do that because of the very climate we're living in. Right? Because of the political climate where most Christians side with Democrats or Republicans and fight for power, we have to provide an alternative voice. We have to move ourselves above the fray. Can we reprioritize? Can we adjust our loyalties in such a way to recapture our faithfulness to the kingdom of God? And what would that even look like? So I'm going to tell you what I think it looks like. Like, what would this look like in practical terms? One, I have, a, I have multiple criticisms of Christians, and this might come across judgmental, and I want to try again to say my intent is not to be like, I have all the answers and people who disagree with me don't. This is just something to consider, okay? Christians who say we have to win back this country... We've got, to, we've got to stand up and make America Christian again. We've got to establish Christianity here in this country. I, this makes me very uncomfortable. This, to me, feels like the logic of the world. That we as Christians, our goal is to try and get power and get enough of it to make people Christian. To make the nation the way we think it ought to be. That this does not, to me, seem like the work of Christ in the world. In fact, Jesus has this option available to him. So when Jesus is in occupied Rome, 
There's a group of religious people, a group of Israelites that were zealots that wanted to gain power, overthrow Rome, and establish a religious state. We have to take back Jerusalem. This is where the temple is. This is where God dwells. God wants us to make this area, this empire, faithful to Yahweh. So the zealots said, we've got to overthrow Rome. We've got to establish a religious state. Jesus does not join the zealots. Jesus does not overthrow Rome. Jesus does not try to make Rome Christian. Jesus provides an alternative way of living in the world, an alternative loyalty that is loyal to the kingdom of God, trusting that God is the one who will resurrect, transform, redeem, renew. We're not going to grab power and make the changes. We're going to be faithful to God, broken and poured out for the world, and God will make the change. Christians, I would argue, are not here to gain political power and reshape the country. Christians are here to be broken and poured out for the least of these. Jesus comes and heals the sick, liberates the oppressed, sides with the marginalized, feeds the hungry, gives voice to the voiceless. Over and over again, this is the activity of Jesus. Christians, I beg of you, I call on you, I say, let us now do the work of God in the world to feed the hungry, house the homeless, clothe the naked, give a voice to the voiceless, that the work of God will not stop no matter what happens in this country. No matter how bad things get in the U.S., God's work will not stop. Amen? I want to remind you, Israel was in a pretty tough spot in Egypt. They were slaves. That's a pretty unjust political system. And you know what? God's work did not stop. Israel was in Babylon in exile, a pretty evil political system, pretty awful. And you know what? God's work did not stop. Rome occupied Israel. Jesus was in occupied territory. Herod was killing kids two years and younger. And you know what? The work of God did not stop. And the work of God is not going to stop no matter what happens here. I pray the divide gets bridged. I pray democracy and uh, trust and kindness are restored. But even if they are not, God's work won't stop. And Collister will not stop doing the work of God. Our work might change. The work of Collister might get more dangerous, more treacherous, more risky. But we, were, we are not going to stop. And that work is going to follow directly in what I understand to be the footsteps of Jesus. To be a voice for the voiceless. To literally love till we are empty. To risk all that we have to ensure that those groups with the least amount of power have a little bit more of it. Those groups that feel the least love receive the love of God. Even our enemies, even those who resist our love, will love them too. And the march of God, the ongoing, unfolding work of the Holy Spirit will not stop because there are going to be Christians who will take up that mantle and continue to do that. But it means rejecting the temptation to capture power. It means divesting ourselves of it. It means giving it away. That we might break every chain. We might level every playing field. We might ensure everyone experiences the love of Jesus Christ. I am more and more convinced though, though I may be wrong, I am more and more convinced that this is going to require Christians in the United States to provide a third alternative 
to the power structures at play, that we would open our eyes and not be blinded by loyalty to any nation or any political party, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus and let Jesus tear down our biases, our blind spots, the ways in which uh, we can't see the work of God clearly in the world. Please join me. Join me. Even if you've disagreed with 90% of what I say, join me in this, that we be united by the kingdom of God, by a kingdom that says there are no lonely here. Let's go visit the lonely. There are no oppressed here. Break every chain. There are no hungry here. Let's go feed. Let's be united in a call to be a community of love and support and kindness to one another, even in the midst of disagreement. If you hear nothing else, hear that. The kingdom of God will come. The end of the story is that love gets the last word. Nonviolence gets the last word. Kindness and grace and compassion and justice get the last word. Let's live those things now. Let's, let's start preparing for that kingdom and make straight the way of the coming of the Lord. God, we are grateful that you have not stopped working and you will not stop working that the work may change, it may get more risky, it may cost more of us, but that it will not stop. Help us to follow your Spirit into a world that needs us, that needs an alternative to what it's been given. We don't know what this will look like, and we feel hopeless and powerless to make any significant change. So give us enough hope for one more day. Amen. Please join us for our final song.